Hey there, NFT Trailblazer. Ethan from Edge of NFT here. Today is a special bonus episode featuring one of the panels we hosted during NFTCon online. We had an incredible time working with the folks at NFTCon. This content could have been caught live online during the event from October 12th to 14th, 2021, a few weeks ago. But we've been granted special access to share our sessions with you as part of the Edge of NFT program. Special thanks to the NFTCon crew for collaborating with us. Today's session features Josh's awesome interview with PeoplePleaser, an incredible artist pioneering in the DeFi and NFT space. Enjoy. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger, the podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back to NFTCon. I am so excited to be here today with Caesar. I've been watching her work and we bring her up all the time on the podcast. I'm Josh Krieger, uh, co-host of Edge of NFT, which I, I do with Ethan Janney and Jeff Kelly. We interview the leaders in the space about what's happening next um, and that changes by the second. So we always have something fun to talk about. And it's been a minute since we connected. Good to see you again. Hi, good to see you again, too. <laughs> well, you really don't need an introduction at this point. Number four on Fortune's uh, list of most influential people in the space. But for those of you that haven't had a chance to get to know you, um, give, them, give them a little bit of your background. Um, yeah, so I have been working in like 3D animation and visual effects for quite some time now. And then um, starting from last year, I started uh, contributing my skills, specifically more doing animations in the DeFi space. And then so that's kind of how I got involved as a contributor in crypto, because previously in 2017, I was only a passive investor and then never actively contributed to the space until last summer. And that's also when I discovered NFTs and DeFi, and then so after you know collaborating with numerous protocols um this past march i think most people know me from uh the unisop v3 animation that i did which then we auctioned off as an nft that ended up selling for over half a million dollars then i donated to charity and um yeah and then so many things have happened this summer i helped um you know worked with linda and um a team to crowdfund for the Ethereum documentary using my NFTs and also um, did that collaboration with Fortune. So designed the cover of their August, September issue and also did an NFT drop for that. And yeah, it's been pretty busy since. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you definitely busy. It's interesting. So I'm in Los Angeles, which feels like one of the NFT hubs and, and you're in London. Is that is that where you, you're you're normally based? Uh, no, so I'm I'm probably normally based in New York, but right now I'm in London because I just was speaking at Token 2049. It's um, like a crypto conference uh, in London. So yeah, cool, cool. Another another big NFT space, but it sounds like um, 
it's been easier to collaborate uh, in a in a post COVID world with with the world of digital art and NFTs, and that you've had a chance to work with people all over the globe. Would you attribute that to sort of sort of the NFT movement or or COVID nineteen sort of people being more flexible with global collaboration, or a little bit of both? I definitely think that it's um, accelerated, and I think the bull run partially of where crypto was also affected by COVID for sure. Um, and yeah, so now I think since COVID, like a lot of people have realized that, you know, they don't need to be in the office. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people have adopted this sort of nomadic lifestyle and also, yeah. So it's kind of like this uh, back and forth cycle where COVID um, accelerated things with crypto, but then people working in crypto often are just fully, you know, online or remote. So then it allows you to be like nomadic, which is a part of COVID anyway. And it, yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, let's, let's start from the beginning. Um, what was the first NFT project you came across and, and what were your initial thoughts on it? Um, I mean, probably crypto kitties. Yeah. Um, I've definitely, that was one of the first ones that I came across. And I think I didn't think that much of it at the time, but um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I haven't thought much of a lot of things, you know, I like, for example, in 2017, I, you know, like passed on Bitcoin and Ethereum because I thought that I can find the next like gem that's like not as expensive or something. So it's like hard to say, but yeah, I think CryptoKitties was like one of the first NFT projects that came from. But when I really started taking NFTs seriously, it was, um, like I said, like last summer during DeFi summer. Um, what was like the aha moment? I think the aha moment was when I realized that um, these, a lot of these people initially buying NFTs, especially last summer, were people who, you know, were mostly crypto native. And so they were like, you know, very willing to spend crypto as an or ETH even in the sense that, um, you know, more so than, you know, cause it's like when you think of NFT numbers, it's so ridiculous. Like, and you know, selling anything for half an ETH is probably not that big of a deal these days, but in the real life, that's like, you know, on any day, like at least like, what, like $1,500 or something, right? And so, um, but I realized that, I think the aha moment was when I fully integrated into you know, being like a crypto ecosystem person where I'm like earning crypto and spending crypto. And I realized that people are no longer really thinking in terms of US dollars anymore. And so <laughs> I think the aha moment was sort of this fully, yeah, fully um, transitional phase into not just on chain, but into the digital realm where people are only spending digital currencies as well as, you know, earning, I mean, owning digital assets. I'm going to extrapolate what you said for a moment. And the aha moment, I like the uh, sound effects in the background there. That was like, yeah. <laughs> Very moment. dramatic. So behind me is uh, my girlfriend's uh, work uh, around her brother's thesis, um, you know, for his uh, neuroscience um, uh, PhD. And, and the amount of work that's gone into this piece of art in the series has been mind-blowing to me to see her working in this every weekend for so long. And I think historically speaking, society has not valued sort of the effort that goes into art, whether it's digital or physical. And it sounds like what you're saying is that because of people's sort of willingness to sort of trade 
based on an ETH peg, it's sort of, it, there's this moment where art can now be valued appropriately um, and there's more price uh, elasticity and flexibility where, you know, how many times have you been to a museum where someone's like, oh, I can make that, right? And and it's just, it just, but can you, can did you think about it for like four years and does it represent so much more than what's on the paper? And do you know how much it, effort it takes to do multiple layers and all that important stuff? Um, I think there's certainly that layer of it, but I think maybe another, I don't know if this is kind of contentious for me to say, but another layer of it is like, do you know the right people who can get you up in a gallery? You know, it's like, I think that's actually such a huge, you know, from what, obviously I don't come from traditional art, right? And then um, that's such a big thing in traditional art is just like knowing the right art appraisers and the right gallery owners and being, you know, endorsed by the right people all about connections and getting to the right places. Um, since art is so subjective. And like you said, you know, a lot of the pieces aren't necessarily like the most hyper-realistic painting that seems technically difficult. So then when you get to that stage, it's based on a lot of other factors. And then I've seen that carry over to NFTs as well. In, in, so in a good way or a bad way? I think at the end of the day, with any sort of economic system, this doesn't just apply to art. Um, maybe, you know, you could say, or you could argue that with things like tech, it could be less so because it is very like, um, based on technical skills. So, you know, if you literally cannot program this well, then it will show. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, with any sort of career in industry, there's a lot of, you know, to get to the top, not just like elements of luck and skill, but also just like knowing the right people. There's always going to be gatekeeping. I personally think it's a bad thing. I mean, that's why I'm an advocate for decentralization. And I, you know, really hope that with NFTs, we can sort of adopt a more inclusive mindset but at, at the end of the day i'm i'm just talking about art at this point right because so many people are just only thinking of nfts and um synonymously to visual art right now but you know obviously the technology is so powerful it could be way more than that but um yeah in terms of the nft art world and you know how much these assets are being like traded and sold for um yeah i hope that we migrate towards a future that's um, more inclusive and less sort of based on yeah connections and gatekeeping and all that kind of web two concept. I guess my question on that note is: Is that starting to happen? Is are 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 people starting to value art differently based on what NFTs have have done to the space? Is is are things opening up? You know, you see Gary V and other folks. Um, really in yourself trying to really prop up new artists um you know i had a conversation with uh nicole buffett the other day where her goal is to find artists that no one has ever found before where she just finds their work beautiful is that happening across the board or is there still this sort of uh social proof component that's like essential i think there's definitely the social proof component um seems uh, that about something that uh, many members of the community care about. Um, I mean, something that I've always talked about, which, which I think would be a really interesting concept, which no one has done yet, but um, would be like if you had an NFT site where there's no, like, 
information on any of the artists and it's just the art itself and then you know there's like maybe the price or something and then you just buy it purely because you like the art and not because you think that you know this is going to be an investment um i mean and there's no right or wrong way to do things i'm just saying that since this technology is available to us we have probably so much room to play around and experiment with um but definitely i think right now a lot of the social proof aspects are still very much things that people look at um and you know, I don't think there's any like right or wrong because if you're buying something, it's kind of like, I don't know if I was like gonna go, gonna go outside to a clothing store and like, I wanna know that this is a good brand as opposed to like a Costco brand or something, you know what I mean? But not to say that any single one person is a Costco brand, but um, they, <laughs> I think- they have Really good smoked salmon at Costco. That's my, <laughs> my thing. Um, no, I, I love your idea of that that platform. You should totally do that or have your dad <laughs> do it. Or maybe someone listening here will do it and reach out to you for to collaborate. Let's <laughs> let's let's talk about DAOs for a moment. When did you discover DAOs and, and what were your initial thoughts there? Um, I mean I discovered DAOs probably yeah, around the same time that I really dug into DeFi summer, so probably like last summer. Um, but I didn't really sort of start looking into them until obviously when Pleaser DAO happened. Um, and I think that, yeah, they really, I don't know, they really like helped kick off a DAO summer as people call it, you know, like basically I think after Pleaser DAO formed, um, there was just like a huge like re sort of alignment of attention towards DAOs. Um, which I thought was really cool. And then, but that's also including myself around the time that I really started to look into what a doubt means, like what is it capable of and why they could be important. Yeah. You know, I, I did some research and, uh, you know, art DAOs have been around, right? Like this isn't like, uh, this isn't something that was just invented this year. Um, I, I guess in, in sort of going through this process, what have you learned about how to create a high-performing, high-impact DAO that that sort of brings the community along and sort of is able to sort of dis, uh, deal with um, disagreements in a sort of healthy way. Like, wh what have you learned along the way? I think that, well, um, even still now, everybody is still learning, including myself and I think several members. And um, I feel like the most important things I've, learned is um, about being organized or, you know, I think in the beginning, a lot of people were, at least within Pleaser DAO, were very, very optimistic because um, it is comprised of so many um, prominent members of the, the, like the crypto and DeFi space, right? Like there's like several, you know, like founders and just like prominent builders. Um, but then we reached a point where we realized that that might actually not be a good thing because um, since everybody is so like, successful already they're also extremely busy people and so you know this DAO can being that you know none of us were getting paid or anything you know to participate in this DAO it was purely just like um out of people's interest so but it also can't be like their full-time job right and so um naturally there's a lot less time and resources that each of these members can allocate to and so um probably what would have been way more uh valuable would be to hire, you know, full-time committed people like way earlier on, as opposed to trying to operate as a side project thing that everybody chips in parts of their time to. And so that's probably one of the most 
you know, um, valuable experience that I've learned. Um, and then in terms of, you know, resolving, I don't know that there's many conflicts in the Tao, actually. I think most, it's funny, I mean, not to paint like a perfect picture or anything, but I think it's just like, usually when people have differing ideas, but that's part of the crypto space too, it's just like, um, not Twitter though, because people love to argue on Twitter, but <laughs> I think within Telegram. I just went to a uh, art plus tech house in DC and they had an exhibit that there was this brain that changed based on arguments and sentiment on Twitter. And so like you just see it go from a really calm, harmonious environment to like a thunderstorm all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, people love to argue on Twitter, but I think in telegrams, people are a little bit, telegram groups, people are a little bit more efficient about this kind of stuff. So, you know, when there's, I think when there's like, for example, when they're talking about acquisitions or like what they want to acquire, when there's disagreements, usually people are pretty open to hearing out, okay, why do you disagree? Um, and then, yeah, typically people bend one way or the other. There's never been like anybody who doesn't give up on their original idea because of, you know, any particular reason. So. Is there any like folks that you've discouraged from creating a DAO because it just didn't make sense? Um, is there any reasons to not create a DAO? I think there are many reasons to not create a DAO. <laughs> I mean, first of all, yeah, like I said, it's it's a new type of structure, right? So um, it's I wouldn't say it's like the easiest organizational structure to navigate, especially because it's it's supposed to be flat and democratic. So for example, um, just in a hypothetical situation, if you see somebody that you could think is not like, let's say, super competent in the DAO, it's not like anybody is the, the CEO or the boss so that they can they can have a say to like fire like nobody can be fired. You know what I mean? And so, um, I, I yeah, I definitely feel like if anybody is going to create a DAO, don't create one just for the sake of it being a DAO. I think you need to sort of really look into it. Why does it need to be decentralized? Why does it need to be on chain? Um, and I mean, like a totally, a, a, I mean, a random sort of like a tangent was that I recently was in Vancouver and then I went to this place called, um, it's like this hub called Decentral. And then um, they have like their own sort of like what they call an AO. So it's not decentralized, but, you know, they have like their own system of like how they onboard members and, um you know like voting and sort of and like hierarchy and like how they structure their organization and everything and i found that pretty interesting and so and you know the, because they don't have any reason for it to be decentralized it just made sense for them to just be an ao and yeah so i mean that's probably just like a long way to say that uh if you're looking into something like this you should probably research why a dao would be necessary and important to you because it is a lot of work at the end of the day yeah and, and people talk about community and teamwork but not everyone feels comfortable with a total egalitarian structure and yeah. it can be frustrating right if, yeah. if if that's not like the right structure for you sure exactly so um you've been up busy as usual um doing some cool stuff with steve aoki can you tell us a little bit about the recent sotheby's auction congrats by the way Thank you. Um, yeah, so that was a fun little project that I did, um, which basically started when um, Steve Aoki and his team reached out and you know asked if I'd be interested in collaborating on something. And then 
Um, you know, I sort of responded with, well, we can, if we can find an idea that's like exciting to both of us and interesting and like has a meaning and purpose behind the collaboration, then um, we should absolutely do something together. And then so, uh, you know, half of it was like realizing that Steve has a very different audience um, to mine. And then, um, you know, how can we sort of like combine or at least take, like take advantage of that? And this is still an ongoing experiment, right? So the-, the How would you describe his audience? I'm just curious. <laughs> Uh, definitely more of a mainstream one as in, you know, like, I think my audience is super niche. Like, it's just like literally, um, a subset of crazy cult people who believe in magic internet money. <laughs> nice. And then Steve has like more of a normal, like functional outside world audience, I think, <laughs> uh, obviously. Everything. Um, and so, yeah, we were thinking for now like, oh, until they become weird, culty, <laughs> money people because uh, you, you guys created a bridge together. This is true. Yeah. And then so the piece called Serendipity um, was, you know, also we were or I was talking about how on chain collaborations weren't truly like, you know, I don't think the whole process um, has been very eloquent up to this date. Like mostly it's just like, when two artists um, collaborate on chain, either one of them would mint the piece, let's say, and then maybe in the description, they'd be like, oh, this is a collaboration with somebody else. Um, and Foundation has made like a step forward with that using like the split contract where, you know, on their site, it's like built into the smart contract where you can just split the proceeds, but still even on their site. And also, you know, if you're like trying to look at it on OpenSea or whatever, the piece is ultimately still minted by one address. And then so, I was thinking that if we have that restriction, you know, it's like, it's just, I mean, I, I don't even know why I need to point this out, but it just obviously it's wrong, not wrong, but just like doesn't feel super right that only one of the collaborators is minting the piece, right? And then so um, then I like explored this idea of like, okay, well, if we created a Gnosis save, um, similar to a DAO, but it's not a DAO. And then let's say Steve's um, address is on the multi-sig and my address is on the multi-sig. So on chain, you can see that both of us own this, um, Gnosis safe, and then if we use the address of the Gnosis safe to mint the piece, then that's, you know, not I the most ideal of situations, but at least a step forward than just each one of us having to pick who is minting the piece, right? So at the very least, um, and then we, so then, and then, you know, since it's already a Gnosis safe, I thought, well, if we like, you know, we'll mint a piece and then we sell it and then the funds go back into the safe, which is the vault, um, then we can also use that to sort of like curate and collect. And then, you know, me being obviously female, but also just, um, and yeah, Steve had noticed this as well. It's just like amongst blue chip artists or just a lot of the NFT artists in general, mostly it's like male artists who are getting a lot more exposure and recognition. Um, and so sort of in the hopes to sort of balance that and give, you know, up and coming female artists like more of a stage and presence and hopefully exposure um we thought well why not do an experiment where we use this gnosis safe where the piece itself gets auctioned off funds go back into the gnosis safe then we use that to collect from up and coming field artists but also that hopefully combining our audiences we can shed a little bit more light um and just to see if this kind of behavior can inspire change in the space and also for people to pay more attention to female artists um yeah so that's, that's amazing really what was the uh what was the sort of theme of the piece and how did you come up with the concept? Um, well, the concept was something that I had come up, you know, a while ago. I mean, I, this isn't, you know, you can often see this theme of like, 
a female character with like a big sort of either like a monster or you know just like big type of like you know it's it's like a recurring theme in a lot of my art pieces and um I think part of the commentary is just sort of like a I always say that it's it's like a lonely journey for me to sort of you know not because it's not it's not a fight right I'm not fighting like gender disparity but it's more of like see in, in all my pieces it's more like a harmonious but you know usually like the monsters or whatever are are friendly with the female character or you know at least like you know allies um with the female character and it's more of just like trying to make a commentary on like tackling this huge sort of like problem or like all these systemic um values that we have been um inscribed with from society and how sort of like we can like tackle that on and or at least for me you know and so and how i can turn that into a friendly you know collaborative one as opposed to female versus male or like gender wars it's not like that at all you know for like in this case for example like steve was so on board to help um you know sort of benefit like up and coming field artists because he also agrees that there just aren't enough of them being recognized in the space and so you know it's not like a an antagonizing relationship it's like a collaborative one where we both agree on this value and want to push it forward well, well let's uh let's take a moment to give some up and coming female artists a shout out who who are you seeing in the space that you're excited about um so i mean the girl who makes um the like bull market girlfriends um that i saw recently was really good uh let me find her uh, actual handle on twitter um because i think she deserves a shout oh it's chris k underscore nft um she's doing some really cool stuff um and then i mean there's some other ones that i i personally like to um collect from i mean oh me and steve actually both follow this female artist her her instagram handle is zoe winters x um she's like doing some cool stuff so we'll probably look at maybe collecting some stuff from her um obviously i think world of women deserves a shout out it's a cool project um are you okay and, with the, like the world of women copycat projects where they're getting more punk or there's i've seen like more more projects like that recently i think it's all fun right <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's like if there's like scan punks or like cool cat spinoffs, like I don't see why, you know, I think it's it should be a form of flattery if there's like a spinoff of your NFT series, you know what I mean? Totally. Um, yeah, and then I think, I, oh, another, maybe a few other ones that I want to shout out was there was one that I recently found. She's doing cool stuff for um, Sushi. Her name is like, oh, her handle is Mochi NFT, like M-O-C-H-I NFT. Um, very cute. There's another female artist that she does art for CoinGecko that I really like as well. Um, I've collected a bunch of her like Pokemon drawings. They're so cute. Um, and, and it's like totally a collectible. Like I think she should somewhere them. What's um, her, her name? Her handle is I-V-H-S-Y. All right, some some good alpha intel yeah, so folks that want to support listen. female artists. Let's uh let's give these artists some love. Um, yeah. we only have a few more minutes just to take a step back. You talked about sort of uh, social impact and values based decision making on this stuff. We've got sort of Ethereum as as the the you know um, sixty thousand pound gorilla in terms of minting, and you have these exciting new chains like uh, Avalanche and Solana. 
Um, you know, Phantom um, is going to do some minting as well. What are your, what, how do you look at like the different platforms to mint and, and, and where things are going in terms of thinking about environmental factors? Um, Stacks, of course, is using recycled Bitcoin energy. Um, how do you look at that side of the space at this moment and where it's going? Um, you know, I think with, with anything in life, it can always be better. <laughs> and, um, but at, at this point, I think, you know, it's just a matter of like, picking your poison, right? I don't know, like a lot of people obviously target NFTs as a commentary on like energy consumption. But, you know, I, I don't know, for example, like I personally, like I, I don't eat meat and I haven't like um, consumed any like meat or animal products for like eight years now because like that's bad for the environment, you know? So it's like if people are so concerned about the environment, you know, like related to NFTs, then why don't you also stop eating meat or something? And, you know, at the end of the day, like, we all want to, we are all just like doing the best we can. And hopefully, you know, there are new technologies that come up that, you know, help sort of like reduce that. But also, you know, a lot of the numbers and stats out there are just plain wrong. Um, so, you know, and, and at the end of the day, like also it's like, you know, all these like regular consumer goods that we're looking at, you know, like t-shirts and how they're manufactured, where they come from, you know, like making a cup of coffee, like, you know, there's so many things that, impact the environment or just have sort of negative carbon footprints that are associated with it. Um, so, you know, it really is just like being mindful at the end of the day, like, you know, myself, I'm not like minting NFTs every single day. Right. So. Um, yeah. And you're doing good things with them. I mean, even like, look at vegan leather is, is pretty toxic. It can be right. With, no. with what's in that. Are you going to test out some of the new uh, protocols like, like and in, in try to mint on them? Uh, maybe I, I honestly I haven't had time to just like really look into it, but yeah, I'm always about like testing new things and you know exploring and stuff. So it should be fun. Cool, cool. Well, where can uh, folks go to keep up with your new adventures? <laughs> I'm I mostly live on Twitter nowadays. Um, sometimes Instagram, but mostly Twitter. Twitter is people pleaser one, and then Instagram is just people pleaser. <laughs> there you go. Well, um, my handle, guys, is at uh, Josh Krieger. I'm also mainly on Twitter, and um, most of the content that we do is through our handle for Edge of NFT, at Edge of NFT. We're doing all sorts of fun stuff um, coming up. We finally have our first uh, project that we just announced, um, Living Trees, um, sort of pollinating the ecosystem we're excited about. And you can subscribe to our newsletter at uh, edgeofnft.com. We, we've given away maybe $30,000 of NFTs, I think, in the last few months. And, um, you know, our social media manager, Gail, has a good time with, with that. She feels like uh, Miss Santa Claus every, uh, every day. So That's um, amazing and wholesome. <laughs> yeah, totally. This was so fun. Um, look forward to uh, seeing you in real life at one of these events now that yes, it's event season. And um, wish you the best with all your amazing work. Thank you. All right. We hope you had as much fun listening to that session as we did hosting it. Now, before you go, remember to invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers into the Edge of NFT family. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Visit edgeofnft.com. Make sure to join an exclusive group of our most valued supporters by getting on the whitelist for our own NFT drop, Living Tree NFTs. Now, you'll need to contact us to find out how. Tweet to at Edge of NFT or email contact at Edge of NFT to learn more. Hey, thanks for sharing this time with us today. 
Tune in next time for more on the latest and greatest in NFTs.